a very warm welcome to yet another Friday evening spaces or wherever you're connected from. It's 8 p.m. in Kenya, East Africa time. We will get started. Today I'm joined by my co-host, Calvin. Calvin, before we introduce the guest, maybe you should say a word or two. Hello. Good uh, evening, everyone. Glad to have you all on board. Fantastic. Uh, so today we're joined by two very interesting panelists. Call them up one by one to introduce themselves. Topic of the day is understanding inflation in Kenya. And we have two people who would help us understand and break down the, the numbers and explain what's happening behind the numbers. Dr. Abraham, why don't you go and uh, introduce yourself? Thank you so much, Saud. So Abraham here, I am a Kenyan patriotic one, very committed to the cause of ensuring that our economy delivers to all the people through working on budgets, working on public finance side of things. Currently work with a team at the International Budget Partnership Kenya. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Thanks. Tony, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hello guys, Tony. Yetonga, also a Kenyan. I'm an economist. I teach economics uh, at the university. And this issue of uh, inflation and generally matters of economics are matters that uh, I hold very dear in my heart. And I, I do express my opinions whenever I get that opportunity. So I hope that uh, we are able to engage on this matter uh, today. And I'm glad uh, to be in this panel. All right. Thank you all and welcome once again. Maybe our first question would be, what is inflation? I know there are all sorts of uh, definitions, but I would like to throw the question to Abraham so that you give us context what inflation really is in the simplest of terms. Please, Dr. Rugo, what is inflation? I like your last part, the simplest of terms. First of all, I'm not an economist. I am a physics teacher converted uh, into a space of economics and political science. But having said that, so inflation is, the, you would say, is the process through which uh, money value falls. So in other words, it, you basically are saying the cost of things or cost of goods and services goes up, but the value of the money you are holding is not the same. And it's a factor of many things, which I'm sure Tony can help us uh, go into. But basically it's the, that process because generally you're not working in a space where everything is fixed. There are many factors that are at play, buying and selling, making profits and making losses. So that whole process in which an economy adjusts to how people are able to buy and the value of the currency. And many times when we say inflation is high, we are saying basically that the value of the currency is falling faster. And when inflation is low, it means it's almost at a constant. Let me give an example. If you have an inflation of about 6%, what you're saying is that if last year, you could afford a certain set of goods with a hundred shillings. Then the following year, you have six shillings less. So you have 94 shillings available. And therefore you may not be able to purchase the same set uh, of goods. So that's the best way I can try to just say what inflation is. That fluctuation of the value of currency and which then affects our ability to be able to buy goods and services. When inflation is very high, it means we can only buy so many goods. If inflation is very low, then you can only be able to engage so much. But what do you think? There are a lot of definitions on what inflation actually is. But in economics, I think the, <clears throat> the simplest definition that I can give is that um, inflation is uh, the consistent general rise in the price levels in the economy. That is a, 
prices are going up <clears throat> consistently and generally all the prices are going up so that if you have the prices of unga uh, going up but the rest isn't going up that's not inflation so for there to be inflation all the prices or generally the prices in the economy must be going up by how much that's another different question uh, but the there must be general rise in the price levels for it to qualify as inflation. Thanks for that, Tony. I'm going to put you on the spot again. So very often when inflation is being addressed, there is some sort of number, which is mostly a percentage. And that's the difference between prices over a given point in time. Now, there's also this measure called CPI. It is some sort of an index. And for the benefit of the audience here, that don't have a background in economics or finance. What is CPI and how do we use it? How do we translate it to day-to-day use? So assuming I'm a small business owner, I'm looking at CPI figures over the last year and looking at CPI figures currently or CPI figures from month to month. How would I make sense of this now? Okay, uh, thank you very much. I, I think that is actually where uh, the bone of contention is, especially on the figures that we receive and uh, the effects that we feel on the ground. Now, uh, inflation is um, computed uh, using the CPI, which means the consumer price index. Now, consumer price index is calculated on a basket of goods and services. I think over 234 items are in that uh, full basket. So we have a base here, and then the changes over subsequent periods, then based on a, a certain base year, which now becomes a base. Generally, the issues about what items are in these uh, basket of uh, goods sometimes is distorted. The changes that we uh, look at, are the changes that happens in the prices of those goods that are in that basket, they are with over subsequent periods, a month, a year, and so on. So not everything that Kenyans consume is actually included in that uh, basket of, of goods and services. But it is worth noting that around that the 6% of the items that are used to compute the inflation rates and uh, generally the CPI are food items. 18% fuel and levies, which therefore means around 54% of the weight that is used to compute the CPI ACE and levies. So uh, the expectation is once the, there is significant change on uh, food prices and fuel prices and levies, like uh, the, the tariffs, the power tariffs, then we uh, should be uh, ideally a significant increase in the inflation rate. So what it simply means is the rates are indicative of the costs of Living, that is what they should test. And that is if the 200 and over 200 items actually capture what uh, Kenyans consume. Now, if you are a business person and there is an increase uh, or an expectation of an increase in the inflation rate, then you expect the prices to go up in the subsequent period or simply prices are going up. And that therefore means that you purchasing power because if you're a business person, you are also a consumer, your purchasing power is being eroded. And the, the possibility is to replenish your stock, you will also need uh, to buy at higher prices than you bought previously. And that's the reason why 
all the time when the prices go up, the business people increase the prices of the goods that are already in stock because they expect to buy at a higher price in the subsequent period. So uh, the implication to the consumers is uh, far much higher, but I think that is uh, something that uh, we is up for discussion in this platform today. Thank you so much, Tony, for that. Now we're talking about food prices going up. And basically, you've said 36% of the items, there are food prices. That is the larger percentage. Now, uh, when we talk about food prices, we know we are looking at uh, basic things like bread, uh, flour, cooking oil, and uh, eggs, and things that uh, common household consumes. Now, Doctor, these goods and their prices going up, what impact does it have on the common modernity? What does it mean? when these goods go up. Yeah, th thank you so much. You can just call me Ams or Abraham. That would suffice. There, there are a couple of things that are happening, as he has explained. So you have a situation where the, the cost of uh, the basket of goods that you buy is going up. And as I tried to explain at the very beginning, what 100 shillings could initially buy and now means that you have dropped by a certain... Let me give a very practical example. So you would go with 1,000 shillings. Uh, let me use that better example. You go with a thousand shillings to the supermarket in uh, December, 2021, you buy rice, uh, you buy sugar, uh, you buy bread and perhaps uh, cooking oil and, and that's it. But you come back in 2022, uh, your thousand shillings has eroded, cost has gone up by 6%. So it means that technically your thousand shillings can no longer afford you that set of goods and, and services. Now. How this affects is because one, let's go back to how our economy is structured. So whether it is bread, whether it is flour, whether it is all this use energy, and a big part of our energy is fuel driven. So it's petroleum driven, it's diesel driven. And as I has explained, 18% of what informs inflation. Two, the, the cost of those inputs that are used in the process of production has not changed. So here you are looking at first factory production or value addition at the factory, transportation to the shop or to the retail uh, market where these things are happening. So when it comes to your day-to-day -day life, what that means is that if you are to buy the same set of things that you bought to be able to prepare your dinner or to prepare your lunch or your breakfast, then you will need to spend much more money. But your income has not increased at the same rate as to which this cost of goods. Now, 2021, 2020, 2021 is unique because again, we have a situation where not only have incomes not gone up, but also you have more incomes that have been lost. And even people who had multiple streams of incomes have lost a couple of them, either because business was not performing, you know what people call side hustles, you know, your side business was not happening. Some people lost their formal employment. So basically what that means is that you are being forced to live with less for more. And that has a direct impact then. So you have to choose between, do I still buy uh, bread and blueband or do I just buy bread? Or do I buy unga and buy uh, cooking oil for making the vegetables? Or do I just now make a choice of alternative ways of preparing my vegetables? So that's how it, it boils down because as, as, as Tony has explained, the business people, the providers and the suppliers transfer these costs to the consumer because they, they also are being transferred to the same cost. So the transporter is being transferred to 
the higher fuel prices and therefore he transfers it to the people he delivers for. Therefore, they transfer it to the consumers. But then you also have a situation whereby, because again, not as many people are going to afford the goods and services. Therefore, you still have lesser people, lesser and lesser. So it's basically almost like a cycle that keeps feeding into each other. That's how it, it, it appears. And therefore, now you're looking at the same plate of food that you could afford a couple of months ago. You look at it now, you realize if I want the same, I have to spend more or give up some components of that meal. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for that, Abraham. Uh, over to you, Tony. Now, on the same note, we've discussed about food basket, open-ended food basket, and I'd like us to talk about pertinent example. What has happened over the last couple of weeks is wheat-based uh, products or products that have wheat as an input. So everything from bread, wheat flour, eggs, and chicken, which rely on feeds that have wheat as a major component. Everything was shorter. Well, it is true that there are supply side constraints coming in from what is happening in Ukraine. Now, how do you explain that to your common monenchiot that your eggs somewhat linked to, to what's happening out there? Because there are two schools of thought. Like if you understand economics, you can kind of put two and two together and Pricing gets transferred across the value chain and eventually because people have to price up, your sellers have to price up in order to be able to buy uh, more products. But how do you explain that to the common monenchi and especially to the small businesses out there? How big is this risk for us as a country and operating in Kenya to be vulnerable to supply side shocks? Okay. Thank you very much. Um... Before I move to uh, that question on uh, on uh, the global interlinkages in the economy that uh, bring about that issue that generally called contagion effect on uh, basically all the uh, economies of the world, which are actually interlinked, like now the prices of uh, cooking oil has been going up for like a year now. <clears throat> and all of this is linked to the supply of the raw material, which is palm oil that we don't produce, but import mostly from uh, Malaysia. And uh, it's now going to be aggravated, actually, again, by the shortages in the sunflower uh, that is uh, produced mostly in Ukraine and Russia, which is 33% of the entire global supply. Now, but before I move into that, I, I think we have earlier narrowed down the effects on Kenyan on too much of the consumption aspect. But in most cases, Kenyan is a consumer. A Kenyan is a saver with a bank. Kenyan is um, a borrower from the bank. Kenyan is a trader. And a Kenyan is an investor. So uh, all those aspects are actually affected by inflation. As a consumer, your income is spent. I mean, it just disappears. It seems to disappear. You can buy less and less and less every day, uh, which means uh, you have uh, the disposable income remains basically the same, but what that income can buy is far much less, like Victoria uh, has explained. But also, if you're saving money in a financial institution, it means that your savings are worth less, uh, which therefore means that uh, probably the real interest rate especially if the rates lower than the rate of inflation. As a trader or a business person, it also affects you in terms of increase on the inputs, which depends on whether you can recover them from the consumers by increasing prices. 
Unfortunately, if the prices are a bit inelastic, it means that uh, you shoulder the losses or maybe exit the market. Now, the most unfortunate thing is whenever people are pricing for their goods and services, they not only look at the cost of producing and the expected margins in textbook way, they also look at what uh, that income is buying and how prices are moving up. If you are selling fish, for example, and uh, the cost of fishing remains the same, but the prices of sugar and rice and everything else that you're consuming is going up, you're likely to increase the prices of, even if no costs uh, have increased. So simply because when you sell the fish, you will have to consume and you're looking at that aspect. And therefore we realize that the prices keep going up, yet they are not actually being forced by the increase in the prices of inputs or generally anything else at how they are moving. In some way, the government actually does benefit from such inflation because uh, the tax now, which is, for example, VAT, which is pegged on the percentage of, of the prices, then keeps on increasing. But if the government is to spend that money later, then it means that the government is collecting more. By the time they spend, they will actually collect, have collected more taxes than they would have collected at low levels of inflation. Now, the biggest problem, however, that now we face, other than these domestic uh, pressures on inflation, the cost of production, the supply problems, like now we have a supply problem of food because of drought. And we expect that even if we have rains at the moment, the supply will not resume until like three months. So which means uh, the supply is going to filter into the following three or four months. Now we have a different other aspect now, which is the problem of the supply chain. And uh, the supply chain first was affected by the pandemic. And now by the Ukraine and Russia conflict, because Ukraine and Russia, they are a breadbasket. They produce 35% of the entire wheat that is consumed globally, 85% Ukraine and Russia. We have also the supply of sunflower that is used in production of uh, cooking oil, which means we also expect that one to go up. Now, how these ones affect us and other issues is simply because we are importing it. Okay, So we may import inflation because there is an inflation going up in the countries where we're importing, or there's a problem in the supply. And once Ukraine and Russia are unable to supply to the market, then the remaining uh, suppliers will simply increase their prices because they are rationing uh, th th that demand. Not everybody who is demanding gets. And if he has to get, then the amount of money or the price he's willing to pay is what determines whether or not he gets it. So all this plus the inflation going up elsewhere. In the UK, it's now 6.2%, uh, the highest in 30 years. In, in the USA, it's 8%, the highest since 1980. All these effects now will now come down to the local monarch here. You will buy fuel at high cost. You will buy rice at the high cost. You will buy sugar at a higher cost. Yet all those things, the factors fueling them cannot be seen. Unfortunately, most of the Kenyans have no understanding of how the economy is interlinked. So 
making an explanation to an ordinary Kenyan on why the one liter of cooking well has to go up to 400 or 600 is something that they wouldn't understand and cannot understand. So what we should probably learn from these experiences is that the government has its role in ensuring that we have local ecosystem that shields us from those external shocks. Like, for example, why is it that we are getting our entire sunflower and, and the palm oil from our side? How much can be produced profitably in this country? Those are some of the things that have been addressed, but there are also other aspects that unfortunately cannot be mitigated. Because if you do not produce oil, uh, then there is no way you would substitute that unless you look at the alternative energy supplies. So uh, the entire of these things, I uh, believe, are going to bring a lot of issues, especially uh, at the moment when the tax imposed on goods and services in order to pay the public debt is also getting into the mix of one of the lending causes of inflation. Now, we pay as Kenyans, but those things are not factored in the prices that we get, the inflation prices that we get, because inflation is actually a price that we get. For example, our oil is, now it's 134 shillings per litre. But the actual price that Kenyans are paying is over 146 shillings, because the government is subsidizing 12 shillings, but it's actually Kenyans who are paying that 12 shillings. Effect of this is that we have inflation figures that do not reflect on the realities on the ground. So whenever you move around, every Kenyan is talking about how the cost of living is going up and how things are tough from one shop to the next. What the inflation figures from the government agencies are giving us is the opposite. We have now 5.08% inflation, which is the lowest in 16 months. And that is to tell Kenyans that they have never been better since over one year. And I believe most Kenyans would disagree. And uh, my question has always been whether the prices that are collected for purposes of computing CPI do actually reflect the actual prices that uh, Kenyans are paying for centers and, uh, and rural areas. Probably you would remind me if I've missed any one of the questions that you asked. Thank you, Gitonga, for that. Now, we've talked about how the war in Ukraine and between Ukraine and Russia affects uh, prices of goods. I'd like to get back home and perhaps throw this to you. Now, what are some of the policies that affect inflation, perhaps that can be implemented by the government, maybe the central bank, to perhaps put uh, a cap on the levels of uh, inflation within reasonable confines? What are some of these policies? And back home, what are some of the things that really affect the prices of goods that uh, we lead, lead to what we refer to as inflation? Please Thank you so much. I hope I will be fair to your question and uh, and, and just uh, speak as much. So, uh, one of the things that we need to think about is uh, a cue that uh, Tony has just gotten ourselves into, and one is, one of those things has to do with the cost of energy. 
So this is not necessarily a central bank thing, but the cost of energy, as I said, is largely driven by the fact that uh, we use a lot of petroleum and which is imported. But we are at 365 day Sunday. So alternative sources of energy from solar to wind, wind power to hydropower to geothermal power that can significantly reduce. So going green, going green in terms of energy sources, that already starts to reduce a lot of the, you know, rely on diesel. You go across this country, you find portion mills that run on diesel. And of course, there are others run on electricity. If we can reduce that, we can first bring the cost of electricity down. The second one has to do with the fact that we need to move from being a net importer. A lot of the things, as Tony has mentioned, that we need to use here from as basic as maize that we produce beans that we produce, we still, wheat that we produce, we still buy a lot of it from outside, outside the country. Tea, coffee that is packaged elsewhere, because that starts to do is that basically you are improving uh, your production, you are selling goods at a high, and therefore by selling, then you have a higher foreign currency gain. And that means then when it comes to things like servicing debt, which much of it is a good portion of it is in foreign currency. Of course, we know very well that we have a lot of it in Kenyan currency. Then basically what you, what you, you start doing is that then you are earning more than you are spending. Because when you're spending, as you say, you know, uh, and, and, and rightly say, we are spending more on getting money out of the, the economy. And you're basically losing interest rates, I think is also an interesting aspect. And the interest rates here has to do with how easily people can be able to access uh, credit. Our interest rates are fairly high, both by the interest rates at which government borrows uh, from banks to the basic levels of, of Mwananchi or citizens, how much they access credit, whether it's from their circles. You have other parts of the world where people can be able to access even things like mortgages at as low as 3%, as 1.5%, some I think, or even as, you know, 1.2% or thereabout. But here we are at 12, 14, 15, and at one point it was even at 19%. Uh, and this, these are the kind of measures that then you start putting in place. So that then, first of all, you are encouraging a, a saving culture, you're encouraging an investment a, a, a culture, but you're also making sure that people can be able to buy and enjoy the same comfort of life. A fourth one, which yes, is related to the central bank, but not necessarily so directly. So it's also to say that the fact that inflation and then managing it is one side of it, is also a whole area about price control. Now, I know these are very contentious and politically, I would even like to hear some of the colleagues in this call comment. Price control, uh, which basically means that the government absorbs and therefore people can be able to enjoy bread at a certain standard price regardless of what is happening. Farmers can be able to sell their milk at a certain standard price. It could play a role. Of course, the question is who absorbs that cost? We know very well right now with the fuel subsidy, I know Antonio has, has pointed this, is actually being absorbed by the same Kenyans who are supposed to be subsidized. But the truth of the matter is that yes, fuel prices across the world have tripled, but in Kenya they have not necessarily tripled. Yes, they have gone up, but they have not tripled. So which means then there's been a process there uh, of, of, of balancing. I think, I think for me, those are the things that are on top of my mind that are policies that basically would lead to, first, of course, as I say, with more production locally, being able to, to, 
to export more from ourselves, then it means therefore you're creating employment. You are being able to increase you know, income in real terms at household level. And that has a return effect in terms of how people are able to purchase the buy Kenya, build Kenya kind of concept in its real sense. That would be a bit different. Thank you. Back to Tony. Dectarius talked about uh, price control. What do you think the government has to do? For instance, when we talk about the price of LPG or what is commonly referred to as cooking gas, the government really has a role to play in uh, when we talk about taxes. Please tell us more about taxes and also in comparison to neighboring countries, let's say Uganda and Tanzania. Will you say we are at our worst place or are we just doing fine? Are we within the confines of uh, reasonable inflation? Please, Tony. Okay, thank you very much. Let me first start with the suggestion by Dr. I will basically agree with most of his suggestions, but I would love to express my strong disagreements on the issues of the price control and subsidy. Subsidy and price control is supposed to be a temporary measure, a temporary measure that should not exceed Basically, uh, one year, a price control, then we're doing something wrong because price is a signal. If the prices are low, that basically tells you that there is supply that meets the demand and therefore maybe even into excess and that reduces the prices or the taxes are lower and that reduces the prices. So the price is a signal that tells the suppliers what to produce. If the prices are high, there is a high chance of recovery costs. What we should do is we should address issues that bring about high prices. And that is to say things that affect and influence our inflation, which I believe is mostly supply-driven. Our inflation is mostly supply-driven. But the central bank which is ta tasked with the responsibility of maintaining price stability, that means low prices, as on in its tools, mostly demand management tools that are supposed to de manage demand so that inflation that is caused by excess demand can be addressed by increasing rates. When you increase rates, you make borrowing difficult or expensive. Therefore, that cuts debt driven expenditure or demand. So as it does that, it also cuts investment because that same money is the money that is being used for investment expenditure. That is the reason why I believe that most of the causes of our inflation and cannot be addressed. And the redress to the inflation problem doesn't lie on the central bank. It lies on how policies by the central bank and the treasury are synchronized. Managing fiscal policies that remove demand uh, supply constraints is basically a function of the national government. When the national government, for example, borrows too much, then it means that the national government has to impose taxes to repay. When they impose taxes, they drive the prices up. And then that fits into the system because now that the cost of production is high, courtesy of government taxes, then that is passed to the buyer and the Kenyans and the consumers. If you take, for example, the drivers of energy prices in this country, 
then you realize that the taxes and levies are the biggest item that drives cost of fuel. We have nine taxes, nine taxes and levies, which together amount to 59 shillings per liter of fuel. So I would believe that the best and the easiest way to reduce the prices of fuel, including the electricity, if you look at uh, the breakdown of the levies and taxes there, you realize that mostly you're paying for taxes and then you get some tokens for free. So if the government would reduce the taxes, then we would have lower energy. Energy is an input in the production process, which means we will have lower cost of production. And with the lower cost of production, we will produce more. And that will uh, bring prices down. So mostly the food inflation, which is the biggest now driver of uh, inflation in this country, comes from uh, supply constraints. We have drought, which brings about shortage, or we have a high cost of production that leads some farmers, many farmers, including myself, to abandon some of the agricultural practices, which would have ideally generated more food and driven prices down. So when you impose a price control, like it happens on the, how much the government is offering for these farmers in uh, Rift Valley, what happens is the maize farmers will not supply. And if they supply, that will be the last time they supply. So why engage in maize farming only to make a loss, which means they will withdraw from maize farming. Uh, and as a result, Kenya will have to import more of its maize. And obviously it will import at a huge cost and at a risk of importing inflation as well. You look at our figures on uh, government borrowing, you realize that uh, government borrows so heavily from the domestic market, which means banks lend to the government. And that is a big portion now running in trillions. As the government borrows, you realize also that the loans to the private sector are reducing, which means basically the government is borrowing too much and pushing the private sector, which does the production from the credit market. And without that credit, they may be unable to produce to meet the demand. So basically what we have, we have the prices going up. So my suggestion would be we address the inflation problems depending on the sources so that if the source is input cost of input then we should be able to address the cost of input surprisingly our policies is also not synchronized we should be having the central bank synchronized with the treasury so that the money is available at lower rates the, the demand is the acceptable demand the supply is being stimulated so that people can engage in a certain uh, supply at a higher profits and lower costs. So basically, the biggest part should uh, lie with the national government. Even as we suffer the shortages in uh, production of food that result into inflation, this country loses 70 billion worth and 34% of the entire 
agricultural uh, horticultural production and according to research by Kipra, that is mostly because of lack of infrastructure. And that therefore means if the government invested more in feeder roads instead of expressways, feeder roads, then it would make it easier to move cabbages from engineer in Nyandarwa where they are produced in large quantities and cheaply or in some other places and at a low cost to Nairobi where they are needed. And in, in this way, the farmer gets a decent income. Buyers and the consumers in Nairobi buy at a lower cost, which means they have some gains out of the surpluses, which then is spent on other goods and services, which in return stimulate those other sectors. So it means that if we have a proper road to access the market, then we have a lower fuel cost to take the same goods to the market. And we have market reforms that provide access to information and therefore remove the information asymmetry that reduces the gaps in the prices, then it's likely that we can significantly reduce the biggest component of our inflation, which accounts for the 54%. If we can do that, then increasing productivity from agricultural sectors and other sectors will generally increase the GDP. And with a higher GDP, we would have higher tax revenues. The biggest problem is this is what needs to be done in the long term. But most of government policies are driven by politicians and the short term is very important for them. So they really want policies and interventions that have quick solutions. But quick solutions can only be temporary. And that's the reason why we keep on having temporary a fix and then another temporary fix and then another temporary fix, we never fix the entire problem, which is basically structural. The structure of the economy is what needs to be addressed before we can properly address the issues of the cost of living and therefore poverty. Because the higher an household spends on food, then the poorer that household is. If the household spends like 50% of the income on on food, because food is expensive, then that means they have little left for investment, for savings, and for consumption of durables that drive the industrial sector. Okay. You cannot have the, the manufacturing being driven by demand from outside. So can Kenyans afford to buy manufactured goods? Uh, and my answer is mostly they can't, not unless they are able to consume less or to spend a lesser proportion of their income on, on food. So in comparison with the, the, the region, I mean, we are badly off. We, we are not any way better. Now, the GDP, the economic report for Rwanda is out. Rwanda grew last year by 10.8%. But more importantly is the composition of their, their growth. 20% was the contribution of the manufacturing, uh, I mean, the industry. In this country, we are at 7% and going down. Agriculture contributed 24%. Our agriculture contributes 34%. So we are bandly off because the lesser the proportion of uh, GDP from agriculture, 
the better agriculture has lower incomes and therefore if you have 75% of Kenyans in agriculture then you are likely to have more Kenyans who have less incomes we are importing maize from Uganda and when it comes to this country the prices are cheaper or lower than maize that is supplied by the Kenyans reason Look at the cost of inputs at the moment is 7,000, which was actually 2,700 previously. Now the chicken, the same thing, we are importing a lot of eggs from South Africa and some other chicken products from Uganda. What's the reason? The reason is cost of manufacturing things at the moment. The costs have been going up, and I think over 60 manufacturers have moved out of the market. Now, most recently, we had a problem with the supply of one-day-old cheek. Reason, government had imposed taxes on importation of fertilized hay from Turkey. That's the only source we have for cheaper fertilized eggs, which is an input into the process. But now we have government taxes on it. Some other interesting thing you will find is on everything that you buy, whether it uses a railway or not, you will find a railway development levy, including on the fuel. And that is to finance a project. But does that project have welfare benefits that trickle down? So I think most of our problems are on issues of policy. If we have the policy at the treasury, okay, and then it's synchronized with the with the demand management tools from the central bank, then we can as well solve the problem. But that will require a political will, not uh, people who are interested in the short-term political gains. Because as much as that is the case, we will always have something to fix uh, a problem for now. And then when it recurs, we again fix for now. And then we do that for a century. Thanks, Tony. This was a very elaborate. I'd love to join one of your lectures all over these days. We've covered most of the agenda that we had actually planned. We'll still go on. Now, over to you, Abraham. A lot has been talked about, and Tony talked about the government crowding out. And the critical thing was the lack of policy coordination, especially amongst, you know, different sectors of the government or different pillars of the government when it comes to controlling the economy, namely treasury and, and the central bank. I want you to give your commentary looking at the last 20 years in Kenya. They only say hindsight is 2020, but we look back to the Kibaki years and these were periods of significant growth, the war troubles, the war political troubles as well, as always is uh, the case in Kenya. But you look at the policies then and the policies under the current administration they're going to, in two totally different directions. When the Kibaki administration took over, they, they took almost an economy that wasn't only a sneeze, but it had greatly slowed down. So reviving that economy and the policies they used, I think one of the hallmarks was interest rates were very low. There was a lot of encouragement to financial institutions to lend, especially to SMEs. There was the opening up of the service industry. Nairobi grew to be a regional financial center. You look at taxation, there was a balanced policy on taxation. On one hand, technology was almost uh, zero rated when it came to mobile phones and computers and lots of incentives given to telcos to invest. And then on the other hand, levies also started going up, but with some sort of a balance. Now you look at the current administration, which is on a debt-fueled 
infrastructure development. A lot is going into transport, into the transport and logistics sector, but there are lots of question marks on some of the projects. And I think Tony has mentioned, what is the trickle-down benefit on the SGR? Granted that there is a railway development levy that is being taxed on a lot of goods uh, and services, and this is being passed on to the consumer. So your average one JP is actually paying for that in one way or another. And then you've got a fantastic expressway in Nairobi that uh, border borders can't use. So what's your commentary on the different styles of managing the economy and what should we expect to see as, as this administration closes down its tenure? Ah, thank you. First of all, is that we need to appreciate that one of the biggest things that the Kibaki administration did was basically to seal and get things back to where they're supposed to be. You remember, for instance, for taxes, they said, you know, and therefore a lot of people had that pride. There was a restoration of hope. There was a restoration of assurance. And then the second thing they did was to say, okay, fine. Why don't we think of a long-term program for this process? And that's the vision 2030. What the vision 2030 envisioned in actual sense was that there will be three things that we'll need to work on. And I want to start there because they are important to understand the current context. One is that we needed to establish certain enablers. We needed to ensure that things like infrastructure are enablers. Energy is an enabler. Security is an enabler. These are things that you need across board, uh, regardless of what you're doing. And then a lot of that process was going to involve government investment, but there was also anticipated a lot of public-private partnerships where private sector can put in resources and technical expertise and government provides other things like physical assets, like land, the goodwill, the political support and all. What I think is that because when you look at all the projects that have been going on, with an exception of a few, a good number of them basically were in the Vision 2030. SGR, for instance, was in that plan. But the plan was not that we would just get certain public goods with a lot of private input, but that we'll do it with accountability. And that's what the political pillar, Vision 2030, intended, that there will be accountability in how resources are utilized. There will be accountability. So what we've done is that we have had a situation whereby you've done a couple of projects. Some of them, of course, you didn't do them in the way in which it was anticipated, including you know, things like in energy, in infrastructure, and the like. But there's also no accountability because you've pumped in trillions of shillings that you cannot necessarily explain, you know, dollar for dollar or shilling for shilling on how those resources have been utilized. And that, for me, I think is going to go down as one of the biggest critiques of the current administration, that they threw accountability out of the window and so that then you don't see an improvement in the service delivery. The second one is that it was also, an, it has also been a factor of between 2014 and 2022, there has been two times there has been a rebasing of the economy. I know this has generated all manner of emotions across board, 2014, 2021. And therefore there is, there is sentiments in one would argue that first, why did we need to replace the economy twice within 10 years? Does it mean that it gives us a false picture of how big our economy is? And therefore, as a result of seeing that our economy is very big, it indicates that we are in very good financial position and therefore we can borrow more. But perhaps the biggest challenge I see has been the fact that government has almost become a competitor with private sector, with SMEs, and all these institutions, because 
you'll find that government is now the, the leading borrower. Every month, every two, three months, there's a new bond being issued. And what that does is that basically, as we've been explained, it crowds out how much resources, but it does not necessarily withdraw the interest that are being paid from that borrowing. That money is not necessarily being plowed back into the economy to be able to create employment. A fourthly or fifthly is that a lot of these developments have not been locally driven. When you think about, for instance, the projects that have been going on, who provides the labor, who provides the materials, who sells the land and all the processes involved in that. What kind of throughput? Is it throughput for import or is it throughput for export? SGR seems to be bringing more goods in than it's taking actually for export. So when you see all that mixture, it simply tells you that a lot of the focus has not been on expanding the public good, on creating employment. Remember, we are a labor-intensive. But then uh, the focus seems to have been on trying to ensure that we just use technological kind of measures. We import labor, yet we have a lot of labor here. And therefore, that means that the money does not circulate in the economy, does not go to households. And when money does not go to households, and therefore the income of households does not improve, it simply means then their purchasing power is eroded. It means that they are not able to uh, save and because on this other hand, they still have to provide for their health care, they still have to provide for their education, they still have to provide for their housing, and in some places even take care of their own security. So in other words, you see, the social contract is not being honored. On one hand, you are paid to pay a lot of taxes, you can see projects being done, but on the other hand, you're not being provided with the services, with the public services. I think for me, that's the biggest critic. It's not necessarily that they have done mega projects, because there's a lot of questions about how those mega projects have been done, how much money actually has been spent on those very specific projects. But it's this other side uh, that the social contract, the services that are supposed to be provided has not uh, been honored. Thank you, Abraham. Now, I'd like to throw this to you, Tony. What are some of the policies that maybe can be implemented? For instance, what are policies from our neighboring countries in comparison to Kenya? What are some of the policies maybe that make us perhaps be in a better place or maybe in a worse place? Okay, thank you. First, I, I would like to appreciate the clarity in the explanations that have been given by Dr. That was an excellent explanation. We have policies that we can put in place, not necessarily in comparison with our neighbors, because in absolute terms, this country is far much better than uh, our neighbors in the Eastern and Central Africa. These countries, therefore, has a very firm foundation for growth and for the spreading out of the gains that have been achieved by improving the welfare of the citizens. Most of the growth that we see recorded in our official figures is the growth that is basically driven by public expenditure, big government uh, projects, so that now the government or the public sector is driving a bigger proportion of growth. Unfortunately, that growth, which is basically infrastructure, is done by contractors who are not Kenyans. They are mostly Chinese, and therefore a larger portion is uh, repatriated. Instead of growing the economy, it doesn't a bigger portion of it leaks out of the economy, which therefore means it does not improve 
the livelihoods of the people. Then it is expected that we have the benefits from the infrastructure projects, improving efficiency within the economy, generating growth in jobs and businesses. Now, only that it doesn't, because uh, as far as we remember, the Nairobi Naivasha Railway, including the Naivasha uh, ICD, mostly handle. So if only the government can allow through policies, allow the SMEs to drive the economy, then that means we can have the money where it's needed and growth where it's needed. So if we, for example, improve the rural economy, where over 70% derive their income and livelihoods, that means we are targeting our all 70% of the population, improving their incomes. And nobody should say agriculture cannot improve livelihoods, cannot lead to development. If you look at Netherlands, their industries are driven by the agricultural sector. They are the second biggest exporters of agricultural products in the world. So what it simply means is even a small country can grow and even agriculture itself can lead to development. So one of the things I would propose is if the government targeted production, I mean like inputs, cost of inputs for agricultural sector to start with, then we would first be able to feed ourselves. And if we are able to feed ourselves, then we can export surplus or sell it domestically at better prices. And that improves the welfare of the rural economy. And the externalities that come out of that, they flow into the manufacturing, they flow into the rural areas, into the urban areas. But when they grow, they flow into the urban areas, then we have that surplus labor that Dr. Tari talked about moving from the rural areas to urban centers where incomes are even far much better. And then we have the pool effect, the feedback mechanism, the, whereby now we have a forward and backward leakages. We have industries that demand agri agricultural products as inputs, and we have better uh, incomes for farmers by selling or from their sales to the industries. Another thing that we have, and I think we got it wrong, is on the energy policies. The cost of energy in this country is huge. And the issues about the independent power suppliers has been discussed in this country. So I really don't want to go there. But this country produces far much energy than it, it uses by close to 1,000 megawatts. We produce excess energy, which we inefficiently distribute, which is then unreliable. And at the end, the consequence is we have an industry that cannot stand based on the cost of production, major energy. So why then would we buy more energy if we have excess? Now, that's a question for the government. But the effect at the individual level is that uh, once energy is produced and can't be stored and therefore must be sold, if it's not sold, who bears the cost of production of the excess? And that is the consumer. So the consumer is the Kenyan and that Kenyan therefore spends too much on utilities and therefore cannot 
afford other essentials of comfortable life and therefore cannot proceed into buying manufactured goods, which would then boost industry. So we need an industry to grow because the industry is the heaviest consumer of energy. If we have industry growing, we will have no problems with excess energy because the, the, the demand would match the supply. And therefore, we will not have the excess costs being loaded to uh, the already existing consumers. So I believe infrastructure is important, but what kind of infrastructure? So investment must go where they have the largest impact. First, let's solve the food crisis. We cannot move into the biggest uh, high-tech industries when we cannot even have a leather industry in this country, even with our over 30,000 of cattle, which means enough raw materials, but we have no leather industry. That therefore means our policies for industrialization are wrong. So if we get industry right, which is the mass employer, then we have incomes, then we have more demand, then we have better livelihoods. And we don't need to start high. I think recently the highest uh, you know, the, the largest exporter of umbrellas in the world was Hong Kong, a small country, and they are selling umbrellas uh, and they are making a lot of money. The industry in Germany is mostly driven by SMEs. They are export-oriented. They can manufacture things that are needed by the world. So we need the government to put the SMEs at the center of the economy and also to ensure that agriculture is not only emphasized for its um, role in feeding the country, but it's also emphasized for its role in generating incomes for over 70% of the households. So if 70% of the households have decent incomes, then it means that the country is moving forward. And it means also that the food prices are low. It also means that we have enough to buy foods just like other economists say, we have drought at the moment, which means we have a food crisis. And the government is saying it's because we have drought. But really, we have had countries where it really rains and they, they, they eat. So we do not produce cars in this country, but we drive cars and lots of them. And that means that we don't need to produce everything that we use. It means we can produce what we are best at in the best way possible, and then we can buy what we do not produce or can't produce profitably. And uh, that is the reason why there are some of the investments which should not be happening, like sugar industry, if it's inefficient, then we cut it down, we cut it off. We invest money where we can produce efficiently. So our farm mine at the moment is generally for lack of income, not for because of drought. If we had income, we would have bought maize, even from Mexico. I think Mexico is still producing. So we have a problem. Money, because the government, yes, is not putting the money where it is supposed to put to generate highest benefits for the largest number of people. And the second, the government is now becoming the biggest obstacle in the efficiency and productivity and incentives for small businesses. And those are the businesses that drive the economy. The government has pending bills of 
billions of money for SMEs that borrowed to supply. Essentially, they are dead because they supplied to the government. So with their death came the, the loss of livelihoods of a number of people per farm. And if the farm that supplied to the government wasn't paid and therefore it died, which means probably it has not paid its supplier, could be a farmer somewhere. So I, I think the policies of the government need to be streamlined uh, in that respect and to prioritize areas that have the greatest impact for development, for employment, and for welfare gains. And to structure and incentivize uh, small farms in a way that they can actually produce not only for the domestic uh, market, but we can also have small farms that are producing for the export market. That is possible. But what we are having is from 2020, we are having government crowding back some of the incentives that were given. For example, there used to be 150% investment deduction allowance. The government cut it down to 50%, then another 25% in the following year, which was too low. And then uh, in December, the government then moves the allowance to 100% for those investing outside Nairobi and Mombasa. So what does that mean? It means it makes it difficult for an investor to invest when he knows he cannot recover his investment through, of course, reduced taxes for a number of years. So investments that could have been profitable become unprofitable. I, I think a mixture of incentives which reduce the cost of production that ranges from the energy, the permits, uh, a whole lot of incentives need to be put in place. The target being now SME, rural economy. And of course, when we say SME, we don't mean that the other ones should be neglected, but we mean that SMEs are the easiest uh, route to which the incomes can be spread to a majority of people and the multiplier effect can be felt throughout the economy at the quickest way possible because it has been tried elsewhere. It has been tried in South Korea. It worked. It, it's still working in Germany. It works in Hong Kong. I mean, a whole number of countries have examples of, of economies that have thrived simply because the SME has thrived. Thanks for that, Tony. I mean, that was very insightful. I think that the biggest takeaway there is the next administration really needs to put the SMEs and small businesses at the center of, of the economy. But about another 10 minutes, which we will just go through the closing comments of each of the panelists. And I'd like to plant a seed before calling both of you to close the session is we are in an election year and we know we can't run away from politics and the economy. And you're looking at the political makeup. It's either of the two big coalitions that are going to make the next government. So it's either the Azumio crowd, which are kind of leaning towards the status quo. They, their philosophy hasn't really been articulated. And we hope that they will release a manifesto sooner rather than later so that we can actually dig down what they want. But what they're leaning towards is still the status quo and the infrastructure and debt binge, which we've currently experienced over the last 10 years. On the flip side, you have the Kenya Kwanzaa, which is being led by the current deputy president, and they're bringing in this whole thing of a bottoms-up economy. Now, 
we sticklers for rhetoric in Kenya. We don't have a clearly defined economic or political ideology, and it's always a mishmash, a mishmash of lots of things. As you guys are closing the session, and I call on Abraham to start off with his closing notes, is put this into perspective for the audience. Thank you so much. It's first of all an interesting time we are in because it worries me that all the issues we have discussed in this hour and the past are not necessarily new things. But I think it's important for us to appreciate that whichever administration comes, their starting point is where we are ending. Uh, so in other words, their starting point is deaths upon deaths. Their starting point is healthcare that is on its knees. Their starting point is an agriculture that has got so many people involved in it, but has so little uh, contribution to the economy, a manufacturing sector that is basically having more flight than entry. That's their starting point. And therefore, the, the politics of the day cannot be left to be just about Azimio versus Kenya Kwanzaa, status quo versus bottom-up and the kind but into practical demands of how are we best in micro and small enterprises into household businesses? How are we going to make sure that you build both, as Tony was saying, both rural and urban economies? How do you make sure that you open up places? How do you make sure that you actually consume what you produce and you're not just focused? on business interests of importation. And these are conversations that basically have, have been raised with the different political teams are saying that you have to look at these things. You have to think about uh, what are you going to do with taxation? Must we tax everything? Because right now we are just taxing to survive. Taxation is supposed to be a, a, a facilitatory mechanism. It's not supposed to be an extractive uh, kind of a process. Now it's almost becoming an extractive kind of process. Because when you say that uh, KRA is hitting its targets, but more people have lost their incomes, what exactly are you saying? So my read of uh, where we are going with the politics is that we still are yet to start conversing on these critical issues that put food on the table. We are yet to discuss the contents of the plate that people are having for their dinner or having for, for their lunch or for their breakfast in their kibandas or in their hotel, the restaurants. And that is what it must be all about. And I, and I hope that the conversations like this actually can start leading us and guiding us towards say, guys, these are the issues on the table. Secondly, if both coalitions have to see themselves as a player in a long game, this kind of short fixes will not help anyone. They may be politically expedient, but they would not necessarily be such that they can be able to fix. There's nothing like quick fixes. We, we cannot be able to fix employment creation within a day or within. It has to be seen in the long, long term so that as we are opening places, we know we are opening this because this is our target. I think that's what I was saying. And thank you very much. Thanks. Uh, Tony, over to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. The political di direction that we, we take, obviously politics and uh, economics have a serious nexus. That's the reason why we call it a political economy. The policies that we are talking about will be formulated by politicians. Basically. So it's very important that we analyze not only what they say, but the intentions they have on executing them. At the moment, I think I would say it is a status quo versus a status quo. I, I do see no significant difference in the two formations. The only difference is the slogan that they are using. On one side, we have absolutely no idea what they do other than the 
fact that they will follow the footsteps of the current administration, 10 years administration. The other formation is taking credit and has been part of the entire administration and policies that as the Azimio wants to execute. So basically, Azimio wants to execute Uruto's agenda. And Uruto wants to do another Ruto something. Basically, they are the same things. My only concern is nobody is talking about taxation. Nobody is talking about reducing the burden of taxes. Nobody is talking about reducing the cost of production. Nobody is talking about SMEs. Nobody is talking about debts. And there is no policy that can be pitched on a foundation of uh, high taxation and high debts and survive. So if we say we are giving, say, Mamaboga 50 billion per year, the question should be, where is 50 billion coming from? From taxes? Because if it comes from taxes, then it fits into the same uh, cycle. Uh, the second question is, in what form are you giving Mamaboga 50 billion? Is it a loan? Is it a grant? And uh, if it is a loan, it is true that we have a number of government-funded loans currently uh, in operation. We have uh, Women Enterprise Fund, we have Youth Fund, and have they been properly utilized? And my answer is no. So the problem is not lack of funds for Mamaboga. The problem is what has already been proved by research. Eight out of 10 of businesses, SMEs that are starting in, in this country die in the first one, two years. There is no formation that is addressing issues that cause the death of those uh, businesses. So uh, I, I think uh, that is what we need to uh, put into perspective uh, in the ballot. But unfortunately, I don't see that happening. So we are likely to have another 10 years of what we have uh, been having. I'm sorry, but that sounds like a, a pathetic resignation, but that is what it is. Thank you, Wanagi Tonga, for that input. Now uh, we're coming to the end of uh, our spaces today. I'd like to thank our guests, Tony and uh, Abraham. Thank you for your time. We thank you for the insights. Clearly, it's a very wide topic. We couldn't finish all the aspects tonight, but we are grateful for the insights we've had. Inflation is quite a huge topic, right? Also, we'd like to thank the audience, all those who've stayed until this moment. We are very grateful for your time, and we hope you've gotten something from the discussion. We couldn't take your questions tonight because of time constraints, but please watch out for our next uh, episodes. We'll be having more of such discussions in these Twitter spaces. We'd also like to thank the team from Mongo Capital and uh, African Censored. It's a partnership that we really appreciate. We have so much more coming out. Keep watching out for such discussions. And remember to also share with your friends whenever you see an invite for a Twitter space, share with your friends, invite them, because these discussions are very elementary and helpful to each and every one of us. Once again, thank you all for attending. It's been a wonderful moment. Thank you so much and may God bless you.